Let's bow our heads for a moment of silent prayer. Amen. It was in the winter of 1966, about February. It was my senior year in college. And one of the things that senior theology students become anxious about in the last semester of their senior year is, have I gone to school all these years and got the degree in theology and then I'm not going to get an opportunity to preach? And some of the senior students had been talked to by conference president and said, when you graduate, we want you to pastor in our conference or we're going to send you to seminary. I had not had that happen to me yet, and I was getting a little bit concerned. Well, the last week in, last weekend in January, uh, the lady that you know as Mrs. Stauffer was then Alma Garner, and I had asked her if she would marry me, and she said that she would. And at the time, the pastor, who had been the pastor in Topeka, Kansas, when she was a little girl, and had been instrumental in bringing her and her mom into the Adventist church, he was retired, living in Lincoln, Nebraska at that time, and uh, Alma came from a family that was not well-to-do at all. And uh, so he said, when you come to college, you can come and we have an extra bedroom and you can stay with my wife and I. And his wife's mother was there. And he said, you can earn your keep, you clean house, take care of grandma. And so you can stay here during college. So she had already been there her freshman year, and this was her sophomore year. And... Uh, Anyway, when he found out that she was going to marry me, he got on the phone. Like I said, he had, had been a pastor. He got on the phone to the conference president in Nebraska. And he says, I don't know very much about Bob Stoffer, but this one thing I know, if he marries Alma Garner, he'll do, oh, do all right in the ministry. You better give him a call. And the next day I got a call. So I tell people that. I got my first call to the ministry because of my wife. 25 years ago, uh, they needed a new pastor at the Madison Church. And the conference president mentioned my name and asked me if I would go down and interview with the Madison Church board. So I went down a certain amount of nervousness. And how many of you know who Dave Andreka is? You know who he is. At the time, he was the foreman at the furniture factory, Harris Pine Mill. And uh, my son worked in Harris Pine Mill, worked under Dave Andreka. He was one of the board members of Madison Church, and they'd been asking me questions, and finally Dave Andreka said, I don't know Bob Stauffer, but if he's anything like his son Mark, we want him to be our pastor. How many think I really felt good? How many know my son Tad? He's call-porting down in North Carolina, and uh, about seven, eight years ago, I was invited to go down and interview with the church at Joshua, Texas. And one of the members of the church board there had been on the staff at Southwestern Adventist University. He'd gone on mission trips and taken my son Tad with him. And they were asking me questions like happened in Madison. And finally this fellow spoke up and he says, I don't know Bob Stauffer, but if he did anything like his son Tad, we wanted to be our pastor. Now the scripture that was just read to you Let's read it again. Because you see, what my wife did for me and what my sons have done for me. I read this text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 10 through 12. I want to do that for God. Because we are God's kids, aren't we? 
And I want to live in such a way that God will be glorified. Because this is what it says. Read it again. 2 Thessalonians 1, 10, 11, and 12. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you is believed in that day. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God... My wife is not here to tell me to take my hearing aid out. Can you hear me better now? It sounds so loud. Let me go ahead with verse 11. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. What calling? To make God look good and fulfill the word of good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I think of uh, the text in the book of Daniel. You ought to look that one up. This is, while I'm talking about it, look it up. Daniel chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. I love this. I want to be like this. You know what happened in Daniel chapter 4. I've talked about it often. I believe that the stories in the book of Daniel are just as prophetic as are the prophecies. And I believe the story here of Daniel in the lion's den is a, is a prophetic story. And you know what it was there. There, Daniel was high up, official in the government of Medo-Persia. And some of the people who were under him didn't like him. And it says here in Daniel chapter 6, 4 and 5, is that these people who were under him were trying to find something about Daniel that they could use against him to get him demoted. And notice what it says there. Smile as you read it. They could find what in Daniel? What could they find in Daniel? No fault. Because everything that he did is right. And finally they said, if we are going to find anything against this Daniel, we are going to have to find it concerning his religion. How many want to have enemies? Now you don't want enemies. I have said this before. Let me say it again. How many here would like to know how to make Satan leave you alone? How many have heard me say that? How many here would like to know how to make Satan leave you alone? I know how to make him leave you alone. How many want me to tell you? Just do whatever Satan wants you to do and he will leave you alone. Right? But if you're not doing what he wants you to do, you're going to have enemies. Anybody who is a friend of Satan is going to be an enemy of anybody who's not doing what Satan wants to do. Amen? And you see, this is what happened to Daniel. He would not do what Satan wanted him to do. And so Satan found somebody to make accusations about him. And of course, you know, the law was made. Anybody that worships any king other than the, than the king for 30 days shall be thrown in the lion's den. And they knew Daniel is not going to stop praying. How many of you would like to be in trouble because of the fact they knew that you're going to pray and they can't get you to stop praying so they can get you in trouble for praying? How many would like to be in trouble for praying too much? That's what Daniel was. And you know what happened. They threw him in the lion's den, and he was there overnight. And, and the king who trusted Daniel came out the next morning. He says, Daniel, is your God whom you serve how often? Continually. Is he able to save you? And Daniel called back out, my God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not hurt me. How many like to be like Daniel? And, of course, you know that I often mention them. This is found in Daniel chapter 3. And verses 16 through 18 is when they had not bowed down and Nebuchadnezzar called them before him and he said, I'm going to give you a second chance 
to bow down. And when the band begins to play, you better bow down because you don't bow down. We're going to throw you into the burning fiery furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego says, we are not careful to answer you in this. And they were courteous to him. But it says, you don't need to give us a second chance because we are not going to bow down. We're not going to disobey our God. And so he threw him in the fiery furnace. And you know what happened. They brought them out. And in verse 28, it says that King Nebuchadnezzar glorified the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now I'm going to say something you hear me say almost every time I get in this pulpit. I believe that there is a purpose for the existence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. How many have ever heard me say that? And I believe what the purpose for the existence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is to bring about on this planet a group of people that will live in such a way that Satan wants to kill them. You've heard the time of trouble? And that's the reason that there's a time of trouble is because Satan can't control them. And as it says here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 10, 11, 12, they are going to live in such a way that they glorify God. How many would like to live in such a way that people say their God must really be good? Amen? Now, there's a text in the Bible that when I have read it has made me nervous. It gets discussion going. It has made you nervous. I'm going to tell you what that text is. Let's see how many know what it is. It's Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48. Does anybody know without looking what Matthew 5, 48 says? I'm going to tell you what it says then. I'm going to make you nervous. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, how many are nervous already? I'm nervous because I cannot remember one day in my life, all 69 years and three months of it, that I've ever lived one full day without doing something wrong. I can't remember a day I have been perfect. And I read this, and it says, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And I think, if that's what you have to do to be saved, I might just as well give up. Now, I'm going to tell you what I believe about the subject of perfection. And that is this. I do not believe that you have to be perfect in order to be saved. I believe that you have to be saved in order to be perfect. Now, how many agree with that? Because when you get to heaven, the only people who are going to be in heaven are perfect people, saved people, right? Question, will, be, will they be there because they became perfect? Or did they become perfect because they knew that God had saved them and was going to take them there? And I want you to understand this, that it is impossible to please God Unless you have faith. Does anybody know what that text is yet? Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is what? It is impossible to please him. Now, how many think that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, how many think they pleased God? In order to please God, you have to have faith. Amen? Without faith, it's what? It's impossible to please him. And I have read you this quote from the book Selected Messages, Volume 1, 391, that gives one of the best definitions of faith that I've ever heard. Does anybody remember it? Well, then I need to give it to you again. I get embarrassed sometimes repeating some of my sermons, but I talk to people. And you see, when I preach a sermon, I not only want you to know what I said, I want you to know it so well that you can share it with somebody else out on the street. How many think that's a good goal of a pastor? 
I want you to be able to go to work next week and say, do you know what my pastor said in church last Sabbath? Oh, what? Go ahead, lay it on me. Well, here it is. If you believe, I'm quoting now from Selected Message, Volume 1, 391, it's 391 or 2 or 3, and there's some place, it says this, if you believe that God will save other people, but you do not believe that he will save you. Now, how many believe that there will be people in heaven? How many think that you probably have a pretty good idea that you could name at least two or three that you're quite sure they're going to be there? All right. If you believe that God will save other people and take other people to heaven, but you do not believe that you're going to be one of the people who are saved and go to heaven, you do not have genuine faith. Because what genuine faith is, is not only believing that God can cure you of cancer, not only believing that God can help you find a job, not only believing that God can help you through this life, but real faith says, even if they throw me in the lion's den, even if they throw me in the fire and I burn, I believe that God is going to resurrect me and take me to heaven, and I believe that that's what real faith is. And so you see, when people read that text in Matthew 5, 48, that says, be ye therefore perfect, you think, oh, I can't do that, and if you have to do that to be saved, I'll never be saved. You don't have to be perfect in order to be saved. But once you start rejoicing that Jesus Christ by his power and his mercy and his love has saved you, you start getting a different attitude toward God. Now I want you to look at another text. This is found in Matthew chapter 22. And it's verse 37. I'm going to wait till you get there. Matthew 22 and verse 37. I haven't taught you to sing this one, and I'm not going to do it right now, but this is a a beautiful song. Matthew 22, verse 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. How many knew knew that text already? One of these nights when we're having Vesper or something, I'll teach you how to sing it. Because when I go on mission trips, I teach the kids this song. And it's one of the favorite songs. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, all your might. Now, how can you know whether or not you love God that way? Uh, if you're taking notes, I want you to make two letters that are kind of tall, an A and a D. Anybody making notes? A big A and a big D. And then in smaller letters, one on top of the other, next to your A and D, I want you to write the letters in small, M. And below that, I want you to write the letter S. And below that, I want you to write the letters GL. Now think, what are, what are those, what's M-A-D spell? Mad. What's S-A-D spell? Sad. What's G-L-A-D spell? Glad. And you see, when we have a relationship with someone in authority like God, the very first thing you think of is, I don't want to make him mad, right? Now, if you have a relationship with someone and the relationship is that they have authority over you, you don't want to make them mad, right? But when you're having that kind of relationship with someone, what happens to your ability to love that person if you're all the time afraid? Now, I believe that it's a good thing. In fact, the Bible says that the first duty of man is what? The whole duty of man is to do what? Fear God. And you see, if you haven't given yourself to Jesus and let him give you the new birth and create a new heart in you, then the only motive that you have 
to serve God is you're afraid of what he's going to do to you. And frankly, I think that that is a shame that Darwin came up with the theory of evolution because with the theory of evolution, all those people who should be afraid of God don't even believe he's in existence and he's not afraid of them and they just live their lives the way they want to. And I remember hearing a guy around Christmas time said to my Christian friends, Merry Christmas. To my Jewish friends, Happy Hanukkah. To my atheist friends, good luck. And you see, people, sinners, want to do away with God because they don't want to be answerable. They don't want to realize that life is like a cafeteria. How many know what that life is like a cafeteria? You know what a cafeteria is? It's a place where you go through line and you can take whatever you want. But when you get into line, you're going to have to pay. Is that a healthy thing for people to look at life that way? You can do what you want, but there's going to be a coming to the cashier, and when you get to the cashier, whatever you've done in your life, you're going to have to pay for it. How many think that's a healthy thing for people to recognize? You're going to pay at the end of the line. Amen? And if you haven't got any other motive for serving God, that's a good one. There's going to be a judgment. You're going to pay for the things you have done. But you see, you start to love God when you start to understand a little bit about the gospel And the little bit you understand about the gospel is to understand that God sent his son and he paid for what you have done. And so when you get in the line, the cashier is going to say, you don't have to pay, it's already been paid for. And when you begin to believe that everything that you have done wrong, it's already been paid for, do you begin to have good feelings toward the person who's done the paying for you? Am I right? And you see, that's why it says, without faith it's impossible to please him. Because if you're trying to please God... And the only reason you're trying to please God is because you're worried about what you're going to have to pay, and it means pay with your life. You might try to serve him, but you'll never serve him out of love. And when somebody does something for you for ulterior motives, how many of that make you happy? I mean, you're glad they did it. But then you find out they didn't do it because they liked you. They did it because of ulterior motives. How many would just assume they not do it? I hate to say this, but there have been, boy, I hate to admit this. I have an awfully nice wife, but there's sometimes she's asked me to do something and I haven't been in the mood. And finally I do it just because I get tired of her. How many wives know what I'm talking about when when my wife asks me to do something, I don't do it. And she asks me again to do it and I don't do it. And finally, all right. And she says, don't do it. Now, how come she's been asking me for a week to do it, and then when I finally do it, she says, don't do it? How come? What's wrong with you women anyway? A wife wants her husband to do it because he loves her, not because he's tired of her nagging him. How many women understand that? How many men can understand that? A little hard to understand for us. But you see, when you start understanding that God has already paid the price for everything you've done, you will start serving him for other motives than out of fear. And so you, now the second motive, and this has helped me with my wife because I take time and find, and she's a nice lady. How many know Pastor Stoffer really has a nice wife? I remember when I left the Madison Church after I'd been there four years, some of the ladies came up to me and they said, you can leave if you want to, but you've got to leave your wife here. <laughs> and I have discovered that When I started appreciating my wife, I finally said to myself one day, I don't want to make that lady sad anymore. 
Now, how many have ever done something because you know if you don't do it, it's going to make somebody sad? And you say, they don't deserve to be treated that way. I need to treat them better. How many have ever felt that way? How many think when you start feeling that way, you're no longer doing it because you're afraid you'll make them mad, but you don't want to make them sad. And so you start to do it. And you're starting to understand what it means to love the Lord your God, at least partially when you're looking at God. Now, when, when Peter cursed and swore, he looked up and he saw the look on Jesus' face and realized Jesus still loves me. He went out and wept. He had made Jesus feel bad, and he felt bad about it. Now, the first one, you don't want to make him mad, that's fear. The second one, you don't want to make him sad. And when you have done, how many have ever, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. How many here have ever done something that made somebody else sad and then it made you feel bad? Made you feel kind of guilty. So the first thing that motivates us is fear. The second thing is, is guilt. But the way that God wants us to serve him is out of what? Love. And that's why the last one, Luke, sad, mad, glad. And you find out that you really start to love someone when you're doing what they want you to do, not because you're afraid they'll make them mad, and not because you are afraid you'll make them sad, but you wake up in the morning and you say to yourself, what can I do today to make my wife happy? How many recognize you're really starting to arrive at where love is? And you see, that is the Christian life. When you wake up in the morning and you say to yourself, I don't want to make you mad, you don't say that. I don't even want to make sad. But you ask yourself the question, what can I do today to make God happy? Now, what would cause you to feel that way about God? It's when you get to know him. And I remember a song when I was a young boy, just to know him and is to love him. And to love him is to know all the happiness that God can give to sinful men below. And if you will take the time to really get acquainted with God by praying, by reading your Bible, then you'll have something to share to people and you'll no, be, no longer be serving God out of fear. You'll no longer be serving God because you don't want to make him sad. You'll be serving God because you'll have this desire, I want to make God happy. What can you do to make God happy? Well, let's get back to the subject of perfection. I have never been perfect. I'm not perfect now. But I wish I was. And the reason that I wish I was is because I want to come to the place in my life where I no longer make God not only mad, I not only make him sad, I want to make God happy. And can you imagine how God the Father felt when he heard Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we know that our God can save us, but if he doesn't, we want you to know we will not disobey him. They were not doing that out of fear. They were not doing that out of afraid to make God sad. They just wanted to make God glad. Amen? Now, I want you to look at a few more texts, uh, particularly the book of Philippians, which is just about four or five pages just before you get to Thessalonians. The only thing between Thessalonians and Philippians is the book of Colossians. So just back up. We've got five minutes. Go to chapter 3. We'll deal with chapter 3. Look in verse 12. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. So is Paul saying the same things here that Pastor Stoffer just said? I'm not perfect. I'm not there. I haven't arrived. 
I'm not perfect, but I follow after. Follow after what? Follow after Jesus. Follow after Jesus' example. I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which I also am apprehended of Christ. Christ had grabbed him, and now he wanted to get a hold of Christ. Verse 13, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. Read it with me, the next six words. But this one thing I do. If nothing else, I'm going to forget the mistakes of the past. I'm going to forget the pleasure of the past. I'm going to forget everything behind. And I'm just going to keep reaching forth to those things which are before. Verse 14, say it with me. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You don't have to be perfect to be saved. But I can tell you one thing about the saved. They are going to be trying. They may be trying and failing, but when they fail, they're going to get up and they say, I'm sorry, God. I, not only do I not want to disappoint you, I want to make you glad. They will be pressing toward the mark. And what is the mark? What is the mark? Living in a way that pleases God. Amen? And it pleases God. By the way, why does it please God when we obey him? Why does it please God when we obey him? Because he loves us so much and disobedience brings pain and suffering to ourselves. Amen? And I like to see my kids succeed. Why do I want to see my kids succeed? So that I can get glory? It does. I've already told you that. But I like to see my kids succeed because I know when they are successful, they are happy. Amen? And that's why God wants us. Verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize, the high coin of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, let us therefore as many as be perfect. Now that's interesting because Paul has just said in verse 12, I'm not perfect. And when you get to verse 15, he says, let us therefore as many as be perfect, be thus minded. Is Paul contradicting himself here? I don't think so and I'll tell you why. You've heard this every Sabbath I'm in this pulpit. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, how does God accept you? As though you had never sinned. Why? Because Christ never sinned. So when you accept Jesus as your Savior, then Jesus' character stands in place of your character and you are accepted before God as though you were already perfect. And you can have that relationship with Jesus Christ from the very first day that you come to Jesus, like the thief on the cross. All he came to the cross with was terror and agony and fear. And he recognized he was getting what he deserved. He said, Lord, remember me when you come to your kingdom. And Jesus said, the best promise in the Bible, you will be with me in paradise, right? And so you see that thief that day was accounted as though he was perfect, even though he wasn't perfect. And this is what Paul is saying. Let us therefore as many as are accounted perfect, standing before the throne of God, as though they'd never sinned. Everyone who knows that God has accepted you, though you never sinned, and he's going to take you and resurrect you and take you to heaven when he comes. Let us therefore, as be perfect this way, be thus minded. What minded? He's accepted me as though I was perfect. I want to be in actuality perfect. 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness all of it. And so though I have never been perfect and I'm not now perfect, I refuse to believe that I cannot be. Now, I want you to write this one down. 
It's found in the book Great Controversy. How many of you ever heard of the book Great Controversy? And it's on, found on page 489. And here's what it says. Through defects in the character, Satan works to con- gain control of the whole mind. And he knows that if these defects are cherished, he will succeed. Therefore, he is constantly seeking to deceive the followers of Christ with his fatal deception that it is impossible for them to overcome. So when you fall prey to the same temptation over and over and again, and then that little voice says, it's impossible, you can never overcome, who can you know for certain that voice is coming from? It's coming from Satan. God is not going to tell you. Now, God will tell you, I still love you, and I haven't rejected you, and I haven't taken your salvation away from you, but he will never say, don't worry about it, you'll never overcome. God does not say that. And it says in Philippians, you get to the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, except stop sinning. Is that what the text says? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I want you to start saying in your mind, I'm not perfect, but this one thing I know, God is able to do what God says he can do. Now, we're still in Philippians. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 6. I love this text. Philippians 1, 6. Being confident. Say the word confident. Confident. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you. When does God start the good work in you? The day that you come to him and accept him as your savior. That's when he starts the good work. And you know that when you start, just say the word, I'm standing before God right now as though I had never sinned because Jesus never sinned and he took my penalty and he gave me his righteousness. How many recognize just thinking that thought causes you to feel a spark of love in your heart and I want to do what he wants me to do, right? All right. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Can God finish what he starts? Absolutely. I want you to go to another text. This is found in the book of Jude. And you know that the book of Jude is the last book in the Bible before you get to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is there to prepare people to do what the very thing I say the Adventist church is here to do. Prepare people to go through a time of trouble. How many know that's what Revelation is doing? Preparing people. And it says in in Jude chapter 1, verse 24, Now unto him that is able to keep you from doing what? Falling. Falling off a cliff or falling into sin. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Can God do what God says he's going to do? Let's go to Revelation chapter 14. And we, those of you who have been Adventists know this is The three angels' message. Notice what it says in verse 5 of these people. And in their mouth was found no God. In other words, there's no falsehood. They're teaching the truth. For they are how before the throne of God? How are they stand before the throne of God? Without fault. Now, a person who is perfect will be the last one in the world to know it. And if you ever meet someone who says... I haven't sinned for a week. You can know you're talking to a person who's ignorant about himself and a liar, right? Because the person who becomes perfect will be the last one in the world to know about it. Do you know why? 
because they will be focusing so much attention on Jesus because it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, by beholding we become changed into the same image. So as you look at Jesus, that's how you become like him. That's how you become faultless. And if you take your eyes off of Jesus to look and say, oh, I'm really doing good, you're going to sink just like Peter did when he took his eyes off of Jesus. And the people who become perfect will have to be persuaded by God. And he said, you took a hold of my love and you overcame. And you'll say, no. In fact, it says that the closer you come to Jesus, the more sinful you appear in your own eyes. So the closer you approach the state of perfection, the less perfect you will appear in your own eyes until you finally are close to Jesus as you can possibly get. And all you can see is it's all Jesus and nothing of me. That's why we sang that opening song. Not I, but Christ. Be honored, loved, exalted. Not I be Christ. Be seen, be known, be heard. Christ only. That will be the experience of the people who go through the time of trouble. And as it says in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 10, as we go through the time of trouble, we'll be perfected. It says in the book, Ministry of Healing, trials and tribulations are God's appointed means to perfect our characters. Amen? Now, I want you to look at the closing song. I just want to love God more. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. This is the prayer I make on bended knee. I want to come to the place where I serve God, not because I'm afraid of him, not because I don't want to make him sad. I want to wake up every moment, every morning, and say every moment, every day, what can I do right now that will make God happy? Dear Father in heaven, your servant Ellen White has said that when we know God, as it is our privilege to know God, our lives will be a life of perfect obedience. Dear Jesus, we don't know you as we could. We know you a little bit. We want to know you in your completeness. We want to look at you when we have let you down the way that Peter did and see your face filled with love and compassion and mercy and knowing he still loves me and he has not rejected me. And we fall at your feet and we say, help me to love you more. Help me to glorify your name in everything I do, in everything I say, even in everything I think. Help me to bring glory to God. This is our prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen.